BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Welcome to the Science of Success. Introducing your host, Matt Bodner. Welcome to the Science of Success, the number one evidence-based growth podcast on the internet with more than 5 million downloads and listeners in over 100 countries. In this episode, we tell the truth about self-awareness. 95% of people think they're self-aware, but only 10 to 15% actually are. Where do you think you stand? And what can you do to improve what our guest calls the superpower of the 21st century? All of this and more with our guest, Dr. Tasha Yurik. Are you a fan of the show and have you been enjoying the content that we put together for you? If you have, I would love it if you signed up for our email list. We have some amazing content on there along with a really great free course that we put a ton of time into called How to Create Time for What Matters Most in Your Life. If that sounds exciting and interesting, and you want a bunch of other free goodies and giveaways along with that, just go to successpodcast.com. You can sign up right on the homepage. That's successpodcast.com. Or if you're on your phone right now, all you have to do is text the word SMARTER, that's S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. In our previous episode, we shared how you can feel bold, powerful, confident, and alive, and get the motivation you need to finally take action and make your goals and dreams a reality. Learn to believe in yourself with our previous guest, Evan Carmichael. Now for our interview with Tasha. Dr. Tasha Yurik is an organizational psychologist, executive coach, researcher, and New York Times bestselling author. She's the New York Times bestselling author of Bankable Leadership and Insight. Her TED Talk has been viewed over a million times, and her work has been featured on Business Insider, Forbes, New York Times, and many more media outlets. In 2019, she was named one of the top 30 emerging management thinkers in the world by Thinkers50 and as the number one self-awareness coach in the world by Marshall Goldsmith. Tasha, welcome back to the Science of Success. It's great to be back. Thanks. Well, we're so excited to have you back on the show. The reason we wanted to have you on originally was because self-awareness 
has been and really continues to be one of the biggest recurrent themes on the show and, and how important self-awareness is to really achieving any goal or any skill that you have in your life. And you've done so much great work around self-awareness that we felt we wanted to bring you back on and go even deeper into that topic. Happy to oblige. Awesome. Well, I'd love to start out with one of the biggest insights that I've had from your work, also ironically the title of the book, is just this idea that most people think that they are self-aware, but actually a very small fraction of people actually are self-aware. Tell me about that. So this was one of the probably least surprising elements of our research program that's now been going on for six or so years was we discovered that about 95% of people believe that they're self-aware, but only about 10 to 15% of us actually are. (laughs) And so the joke I always make about this is that on a good day, 80% of us are lying to ourselves about whether we're lying to ourselves. Now, this is really important, right? It's easy to look at that statistic or hear it and say, you know, we're all doomed to live in a delusional world forever and ever. But the other thing that's been just abundantly clear in all of our empirical research on this subject is just how learnable and developable self-awareness really is. And there's a lot of kind of like paradoxes around it. There's a lot of surprises we found about the right and the wrong ways to become self-aware. But ultimately, I feel like this is a message of hope. Most of us have a lot more work to do than we think. But if we are courageous enough and skilled enough and choose the right approach, we can make huge improvements and therefore improve pretty much every area of our lives. So what does it actually mean to be self-aware? Oh, that's such a good question. I thought sort of naively when we first started this program, I built a research team from academic institutions, a lot of graduate students, professors, and I thought, well, the first thing we have to do is define self-awareness. It's a term that a lot of people throw around. We sometimes throw it around in the reverse, like, wow, that person is not very self-aware. But what we wanted to do was not just think about the way we're talking about it kind of in a you know mainstream business aspect, but what does the science say? And so, So we reviewed, by the end of our program, we reviewed almost a thousand empirical journal articles, so nobody else had to. And we found just such a variety of different ways of defining it. And so, again, to vastly oversimplify it, what we tried to do was come up with what are the most important elements of self-awareness. And if somebody wants to build their self-awareness empirically, what do they need to focus on? And what came out of that was essentially two types of self-awareness that are completely independent, which gets really interesting. And I'll come back to that. So if we define self-awareness, it's basically the will and skill to see ourselves clearly. But then if you delve one more step into that in terms of detail, you come up with two different types of self-knowledge. So the first is something we named internal self-awareness, which is essentially understanding yourself from the inside out. It's knowing who you are. What are your values? What are your passions and aspirations? What are the patterns of behavior? What are your strengths and weaknesses? Equally important, and again, independent, is our knowledge of something called external self-awareness, which is self-awareness from the outside in. In other words, understanding how other people see us. And my initial thought when we first discovered these two types of self-awareness, again, before we started collecting a lot of data on them, was they would tend to coexist. So if somebody knew who they were on the inside, they would also be more likely to know how other people saw them and, and vice versa. But we found that they really had no relationship. And so what that that means practically for all of us is 
we have to sort of be on the simultaneous journey of both, of doing that work internally. And again, the good news that we discovered was it doesn't take as much time as psychoanalysts would want us to think (laughs) to see ourselves clearly. But we also have to do that work to get constant feedback from the right people in the right way and sometimes live with the paradox of knowing that the way we see ourselves is not the same as the way other people see us. And that's okay. So there's a lot to that, but those are the two main types of self-awareness. I really like both of those categories. And I'm curious to explore each of them. What are some of the benefits of being internally self-aware? And then what are some of the benefits of being externally self-aware? So when we looked at self-awareness, we were usually aggregating. And so in order to consider someone self-aware, they had to be high in both. So that's a really important thing to mention is that having one in the absence of the other sometimes can come along with some risks. So so maybe we can come back to that, but I can talk about the benefits of self-awareness just in general. I could literally sit here for the whole podcast and rattle off outcomes, but I think for your audience, here's a couple of things that might be especially compelling. So we and others have found that people who are self-aware are better performers at work objectively. They're more promotable. They're better communicators. They're better influencers. They're more confident. They're less likely to lie, cheat, and steal. They are better parents who raise more mature and less narcissistic children. They're even more happy in their their personal relationships as well as their work relationships. They have kind of deeper, more trusting connections with other people. And there's even some evidence, and I find this really fascinating and feels very important to me, that companies who are led by self-aware leaders are actually more profitable. There's also some evidence that organizations that are made up of large numbers of self-aware employees have actually better shareholder returns. So one of the interesting things, you know, if I'm at a cocktail party and somebody finds out I'm a self-awareness researcher and organizational psychologist, as they say, oh, yes, you help people with those soft skills. And I actually think that's one of the biggest misconceptions of self-awareness in particular is that this isn't something that we should work around if we have time or, you know, this shouldn't be something that we focus on when all of our, the things on our to-do list are finished. It's really critical to our success and our happiness in all parts of our lives. That's such a great point. I love the examples of how it increases shareholder returns and company profitability because to me, having done this podcast for, for years and years at this point and really experienced the benefits of self-awareness in my own life, it's really frustrating when I interact with people sometimes and they have that exact same reaction, which is, oh yeah, that's one of those soft skills. It's it's not that important. And <laughs> right. you know, I, I really need to focus on something else first. It's like, well, really self-awareness kind of underpins pretty much everything else. And that is a hugely important point too, is we can only be as successful at the other critical skills of the 21st century as we are self-aware. So think about this. Have you ever met someone who is an excellent influencer who is not also self-aware or an excellent leader who's not also self-aware or an excellent communicator who's not self-aware? And so the way to think about this is that our level of self-awareness is essentially going to set the upper limit for our success in almost every other area of our careers and our lives. And that's why I call it the meta skill. And the beauty of this is most people, as we'll talk about, don't spend a lot of time and energy improving their self-awareness. So the people that are courageous and, again, smart enough to do that are going to have a leg up. 
And so the people who don't dedicate the time and energy to improving their self-awareness, do you think that it's a lack of knowledge that they even aren't self-aware? Or do you think it's a lack of tools and abilities that they can use to improve their self-awareness? I think sometimes it can be a little bit of both. One of the things I love to do in my work is help already successful executives become even more successful. And when I come in to coach a CEO, for example, I'll say things like, okay, so how confident are you that you know how your team sees you? They'll say, oh, I feel very confident. I say, okay, well, you know, what do you think they're going to say about you? So we go through this whole process. And then when I actually start to do this qualitative 360, I speak to 30 people that not just they work with, but their spouse, their adult kids, if they have adult kids, their friends. And I get this really complete picture of sort of who the person is that they know. And when I come back to them and say, you know, here's what we learned, there are often a lot of positive surprises, often quite a few negative surprises. And what I hear people say is like, I really thought I knew the answers to this. And often it's not even for a lack of trying. It's that they're busy or they don't see how central this is to their success. And that's where I think, again, we have all these empirically developed tools that, that I've been using in my coaching practice, you know, with CEOs who can't fail for so many number of years that we can do it. Part of it is knowing how important it is. And then another piece of it is, is using the right tools. That's another thing. I think there's a lot of commonly accepted paths to self-awareness that are sometimes doing us more harm than good. Tell me about some of those paths that may be counterproductive. So the biggest one, and I think for me personally, when I learned this, the one that turned my life upside down a little bit was this idea that introspection is not the universal path to self-awareness. So introspection is, you know, kind of deeply analyzing our thoughts and our feelings and our motives and very early on in our research program, one of the first kind of mini studies I did was I surveyed about 300 people on how much time they spent introspecting, you know, literally like how much time every week or every month. And then I looked at outcomes, like did they feel in control of their lives? Were they happy? Were they depressed or anxious? Did they have positive personal and professional relationships. And I also, we also looked at their level of self-awareness and the pretty shocking and disconcerting finding was that not only did people who spent a lot of time introspecting tend to be less self-aware, they tended to be more stressed, more anxious, more depressed, less happy with their lives, less, in, you know, in control of their lives. And at first I thought I had done all these analyses wrong. And so I just sort of kept doing them over and over. And I said, no, this is what's going on. And this is why I think it's so hugely important to actually use science to understand a lot of these pop business terms. So it, it took us down this path of figuring out what's really going on here. And as we discovered, thankfully, it's not that introspection in and of itself is wrong or unproductive for self-awareness. It's that a lot of us make mistakes in the way we introspect that essentially suck out all of the insight from the experience. And the best way to illustrate this, and again, we could do a whole podcast on just this, but to keep it simple, is I think a, a very common introspective question that people ask themselves is why? Especially if something bad happens, right? Like I didn't get this promotion at work that I thought I was going to get. You might say, why didn't I get this promotion? And when we ask ourselves why questions, there's sort of two things that happen that are what 
take us off course. So number one, psychologists have found that despite what Sigmund Freud desperately wanted us to believe, no matter how hard we try, we actually can't access a lot of our thoughts, feelings, and motives. So maybe if I have a fight with one of my best employees, and I could say like, why am I so upset right now? And there's this feeling that if I ask myself that question, I will be able to excavate into my unconsciousness, find an answer, and that will be the truth. But again, what psychologists have discovered is that what happens when we ask ourselves those questions is we find an answer that feels true, but is often completely wrong. So in this example, maybe I say, well, it's because I'm not cut out for management. Or it's because, you know, my father abandoned me when I was a child and I'm just afraid of confrontation, you know, whatever, whatever you could make up. But again, we can't access those true feelings. So what happens is we are just as confident about the answer as we are wrong. So you can start to see how that leads us away from self-awareness. Going back to the first example, here's the second problem with why questions. So again, why didn't I get this promotion? why questions tend to set off a ruminative spiral of thinking. And rumination is kind of the single-minded fixation on our fears or shortcomings or, you know, the bad things that happen to us. And when we ruminate, it essentially turns off the rational part of our brain. So we think we're answering this really important question, why didn't I get this promotion, when we're just kind of getting into this rabbit hole of despair. That's the wrong type of question to ask. Why? Why as an introspective question is not only sort of misleading, it can be dangerous for our, our mental health and well-being. Again, to vastly oversimplify this, what we have found is if we change why questions to what questions, that's when the process of introspection not only gives us good answers and increased self-awareness, but helps us be happy and in control and purpose-driven. So going back to the example of, you know, why didn't I get that promotion? A better question might be something like, well, what can I do differently next time? Or what can I learn from what didn't go so well? from this particular instance? Or what's the feedback that I can ask for in order to clarify what went on? And it seems like a small difference, but what we've discovered is that this is one of the most powerful ways you can reframe your introspection to make it actually produce insight. Such a fascinating topic. And that's a really, really important distinction between why questions and what questions. I'd love to hear a little bit more about that just because it's a topic that's very personally interesting to me. I spend a fair amount of time introspecting, but I also totally agree with your conclusion that, and the way I think about it is there's a healthy level of introspection. And then mm -hmm. if you go too far down the path, it's almost like two mirrors reflecting each other where it just sits this sort of infinite depth that's not really actually really leading you to any ultimate conclusions. That's right. And I think sometimes for people, what really brings us alive are more examples. And this might be a good time to mention probably my favorite part of our study and our program was we found 50 people, 5-0, who didn't start out as self-aware, but who made really dramatic, remarkable improvements in their level of self-awareness. And to be part of, we called them self-awareness unicorns initially as a joke, but the term stuck. <laughs> so to be part of this group of self-awareness unicorns, you had to clear a lot of hurdles. They had to have self-ratings of their own self-awareness on our validated 70-item scale that were quite high. 
someone who knew them well had to also rate them high in that assessment. They had to believe that they had improved their self-awareness throughout the course of their lives and other people who knew them had to agree. So there was really a lot of hurdles that had to be cleared because what we wanted to do is say, what are these 50 people doing differently? And when we first found this bizarre result on introspection, I actually turned to our interview transcripts with our self-awareness unicorns. And we had, you know, hundreds and hundreds of pages of really in-depth qualitative information about how they made different choices when it came to their self-awareness. And it was so fascinating because I thought it was clear that asking why was the wrong question. So what I, I did was I did a search to see how many times in our transcripts they were asking why. And it was like less than 150 times. And then I started thinking, what are the other types of questions we could ask? And I did another search for the question for the word what, and it came up with almost a thousand results. And so that was where I started going, okay, this is something. This can't just be semantics. If there's that big of a difference between these two types of phrasings for questions, what does it look like? So let me give you a couple of examples from our our unicorn. So one of them was a nonprofit director. And she was in this situation. She was telling us that she had a new job and she needed to turn around the organization and kind of get back in the black and so they could continue to exist and serve their mission. But instead of asking something like, in the past, why have I been so hard driving during change? She asked a different question. She asked, number one, what are my patterns, right, when it comes to driving change? And number two, what can I do differently in this situation? Another one was a marketing manager. And he overnight had this new boss he was working for. And no matter what he did, he couldn't seem to make her happy. And where I think a lot of people in that situation would ask something, a very well-intentioned question, like, why are we like oil and water, this new boss and I? He asked a different question. He said, what can I do to show her I'm the best person for this job? Another one was somebody who was working on closing a sale with a client and just not able to close it. But instead of asking, why didn't I close the sale? They asked, what haven't I tried yet? And in each of these situations, going back to the first one with the nonprofit director, she was able to turn around the organization in less than a year and they had a a surplus. The marketing manager with the new boss, he went from, they couldn't even be in the same room together to people saying that, The two of them were an example of how polar opposite people could work together. Um, And then that third unicorn who couldn't close the sale was able to use this kind of story-based approach. That was the one thing they hadn't tried, and they made this huge closed sale. So I think for each and every one of us, this is the kind of daily practice that if we can be mindful about it and we can remember to do it, it seems small. But even just personally, in my own life, what I've learned from our unicorns and all these tools is it makes an unbelievable difference. Those are great examples. And some of those questions are really helpful. I love the question about what patterns am I falling into when I encounter whatever that situation might be? I think that's a great one that you could use and apply to many different contexts in your life. Exactly. And that's actually sort of a mindfulness technique. One of the things that is often overlooked about mindfulness is that we don't have to practice meditation to get all the benefits of mindfulness. There's a huge amount of benefits to meditating. And, you know, I I try to do it. I fail a lot, but I try. (laughs) But there are other ways that we can sort of mindfully notice things in the present. And I call that tool comparing and contrasting. 
So for example, if you had a great week and then you wake up one day and you are not great, a question that you could ask is, you know, what's different today than it was before? Or if you're falling into a similar pattern in a new job, what similarities can I find between this situation and other situations in my life? So yeah, it's a really powerful frame. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. So many great tools. I want to continue to explore some of the other empirically developed tools that you found in the research to improve self-awareness. But before we dig into that, one of the things that you touched on earlier that, that I think is worth exploring now is this idea that there are some risks or dangers to having an overcultivation of one type of self-awareness and not enough of the other. Tell me a little bit about some of those pitfalls. Yeah, that's great. So one of the things that is so cool about having internal and external self-awareness be independent skills is that we psychologists can do our favorite thing ever, which is to put them on a two-by-two matrix. (laughs) So this is oversimplifying a little bit, but I think it's really instructive for each and every one of us in our journey to really reap the rewards of being more self-aware. So on the bottom left-hand corner is someone who is, you know, sort of low or less developed on both types of self-awareness, both internal and external. And I call these people seekers. And seekers are at the beginning of their journey. It's not, again, because they are bad people or they'll never develop it. Sometimes it's a lack of time. It's a lack of understanding of how important self-awareness is. And so If you're in that category where you say, you know, I've never really focused on this, what I recommend to people is to pick one. I know that sounds crazy because we know we need both, but I'm a big believer in pragmatic personal improvement. And when I work with my CEOs, for example, they're never working on more than one development goal at a time. So if you're a seeker, you're at the beginning of your choose your own adventure. So you could kind of go either way. And what I would recommend is pick whichever one seems most interesting. Would you rather spend some time kind of delving inward or would you rather spend some time figuring out how people see you and um, hopefully improving your relationships in the process, right? So that's sort of one. Then you get into these really interesting archetypes where people can be high on one and low on the other. So let's imagine someone who is high on internal self-awareness, but low on external self-awareness. In other words, they really feel like, you know, maybe journaling is a hobby or they're really into personal development or they love to meditate and really kind of explore who they are. They've made some great progress in their internal self-awareness. The challenge with what I call these introspectors is because they're lacking an understanding of how other people see them or that external self-awareness is in some sense, they're like a walking time bomb. And what happens very often with introspectors is you sort of develop this false sense of confidence of your own self-knowledge without having that external feedback loop. So if somebody's an introspector, they might, again, apply for a promotion that they thought they were a shoe in for and not get it. Or, you know, they might think they're in a great relationship and their spouse or partner abruptly leaves them. 
And it's not always that dramatic, right? It can be, but it's not. But the challenge is if introspectors don't take proactive control of learning how they're seen, they lose that autonomy and that choice. And what I tell my clients, you know, if I'm sitting down to give them their 360 report, it's like, how do the 30 most important people in your life see you? What I always say is, you know, you have two choices. One is blissful ignorance and two is knowing the truth. And as comfortable as blissful ignorance feels, you're basically just giving up control. And it doesn't mean if you learn how other people see you that you have to become a slave to other people's opinions or other people's feedback, but you do have to kind of open that channel. So that's the challenge for introspectors is really focusing on that feedback. But then if you flip it, this is where it gets just as interesting. So imagine someone who has a really highly developed sense of how other people see them, of external self-awareness, but a less developed sense of who they are on the inside, internal self-awareness. I call these people pleasers. And pleasers, you know, you sort of think about an example of a, a person who is in their freshman year of college and for their entire lives, their parents have been pressuring them to become a doctor. And they become a doctor and they hate it. And that's a good example of someone who was putting the way other people saw them ahead of their own sense of happiness and meaning. And a lot of times people who are pleasers, I talked to somebody recently who was a pleaser who said, you know, it's like I'm a chameleon and I change my color for every situation I'm in, but I actually don't even know what color I am. And the journey for pleasers is to build that sense of internal self-awareness of, you know, who am I? What are my values? What do I want? What's going to make me happy? Sometimes people ask me at this point in the conversation if there are gender differences. And we have found a slightly bigger representation of women in the pleaser category, but it's actually not as big as I was thinking we would find. So a good first step for anybody is to say, where am I on this sort of spectrum internally and externally? And then what does that mean for how to move forward in a practical, pragmatic way? That's awesome. Then I'm assuming the fourth quadrant is kind of the self-awareness unicorns for, for lack That's of better. That's it. Yep. <laughs> the unicorns are like the top of the top right. You know, if you sort of think about this, you want to be in the top right box. But yeah, exactly. Is people who are aware and people who experience all of the benefits that we have already mentioned. What I think is really interesting about our unicorns in particular is, you know, obviously they are arguably the most self-aware among us. And they were the ones who were the most committed and most focused on their self-awareness journey. And it didn't mean they were spending hours and hours a week on it, but it meant it was sort of this daily practice or habit where they were trying to build incremental insight. Because one of our unicorns was a, a middle school science teacher, and he gave a great analogy of the process of self-awareness as being like exploring space. No matter what we already know, there's almost an infinite amount that we still can learn. And so just because you sort of cross over into that top box of aware doesn't mean, you know, sometimes people ask me like, when am I done? <laughs> and my answer is never. There's always more to learn. There's always more that can help inform how you can live your best, most meaningful, most successful life. Such a great point. And I definitely feel like the self-awareness journey, even if you spend a very long time on it, you're very, very early on in the journey still. There's a couple specific pieces from that that I'd love some quick, almost tactical follow-ups on. One is, is there a tool 
or resource that you recommend to collect external feedback from the people in your lives? Yes, this is really important because I think without the empirical backing, it's easy to fall prey to feedback platitudes, right? You read an article and it says, get more feedback and you say, okay. And then you just sort of indiscriminately ask for feedback. And what we learned from our unicorns was, I think, again, very instructive for all of us on our journey, which is that most of our unicorns were surprisingly picky about who they regularly sought feedback from. And when we looked at what these people they chose had in common, there were really two characteristics that I think as you hear these, if you're like me, the first time I sort of discovered this, I said, yeah, I know a lot of people who fit one of these criteria, but very few who fit both. So the first criteria is that the unicorn had to believe that a feedback giver without question had their best interest at heart. This didn't need to mean that that person was their best friend at work or somebody they were incredibly close to. They just had to have kind of an intuitive sense that this person wants me to succeed. Number two, at the same time, they had to believe that that person would be willing to be brutally honest about the good, the bad, and the ugly of how they were showing up. And for that reason, what we named these people were loving critics. And I always give the example of like, it's really easy to get feedback from uncritical lovers. I could send my newsletter that I'm working on to my mom. God bless her. She'll tell me it's the best newsletter I've ever written. (laughs) But is that going to be helpful for me to get better? Maybe it's good for my confidence, but it's probably not great for my self-awareness. On the other end are sort of the critical people who don't want us to be successful. A lot of us, I don't know if you've had this experience, most of us have in a workplace setting where somebody kind of comes by and says, hey, I have some feedback I'd like to give you. And it's like a feedback drive-by where you're pretty sure they don't actually want you to be successful. This might be more about their issues, their hangups, they might see you as a threat. And so I think we just have to be really careful and disciplined. And then once you have your loving critics, and by the way, this can be three to five people. That was what most of our unicorns shared is I've got a kind of a roster of three to five loving critics that I go to frequently is to set up some type of cadence that's workable for you to check in with them. And I talk about this pretty extensively in Insight, but I think that the biggest piece of this is to find a regular opportunity to check in. And for some people, if you say the best I can do is quarterly, fine but just do it. <laughs> the worst thing to do in this situation is to say, oh, I'm, I'm going to overcommit. I'm going to check in with my loving critics for five minutes every month. And then you don't do it. And then, you know, all is lost. So what I would encourage you to do is experiment with that, but have a conversation with them. Say, hey, listen, you are somebody that I've identified as a great supporter of me, for which I'm very grateful. You're someone who, you know, maybe even if you haven't given me direct feedback yet, you're somebody that I always see in meetings who's willing to put the truth on the table that no one else is willing to say. And I I respect that about you. And I'm wondering if you might be willing to give me 10 minutes of your time every two months and let me just take you to a quick cup of coffee. And I can ask you a few targeted questions that can help me be the best leader I can be, for example. I find that that is one of the most powerful ways we can improve our external self-awareness. That again, if you add up the amount of time you're spending is really pretty minimal compared to what you get out of it. 
how much visibility does the loving critic need into your life, your daily activities, your work, et cetera? Great question. That's really important. So I give the example and insight of my best friend who is absolutely a loving critic, but there are only certain things that make sense for me to get her feedback on. So she's a lawyer by trade. Let's say I have my brand new speaking reel that I just put together and I want to get feedback on it. I could send it to her and she could give me some feedback of just things that occurred to her. But because she's not sort of in that world, it might not be as helpful as another loving critic who is in the speaking business and in the speaking world. What might be great for me to ask her about is, you know, how am I showing up in social situations and how can I be a better friend and a a better human? You want to make sure that that person has sufficient exposure to you in that sphere of your life and then hopefully some level of subject matter expertise. I'm going to say that's not always the case. I call it like the grandmother test. Sometimes somebody who is totally new to whatever you're doing can spot things that are very valuable that people who are my in the in the weeds wouldn't see. But I think in general, the more the person we're asking knows about that particular skill or part of our lives, the better. And are there any commonalities or best practices you found around the kinds of questions to ask your loving critics? So this is an interesting one because I think it really depends on a lot of factors. Here's the one sort of universal truth. And I'll illustrate this with a kind of a comical story that happened to a friend of mine in graduate school. So it was her first semester working with her advisor. And when you're in a PhD program, you work with your advisor and see your advisor more than almost anyone in your life. They're kind of like the center of your world. And at the end of the semester, she wanted to ask her advisor what feedback her advisor had for her and you know how she could be the best grad student possible. So at the end of one of their meetings, she asked her advisor, do you have any feedback for me as your advisee? And she paused for a minute and she thought, and the answer she gave my friend was essentially she felt like my friend was wearing the wrong color foundation, the wrong color makeup. (laughs) She didn't talk anything about what kind of a teaching assistant she was, how she was doing in her courses, you know, anything that was relevant. My friend just sort of wandered out and thought like, oh my God, what just happened? That's the danger if we ask someone a really open-ended question. This is really common. People say, oh, ask what you can start doing, stop doing, and continue doing. And I think in some situations that can be helpful. But what I suggest to people is that to remind you that we are all the captain of our feedback ship. As cheesy as that analogy is, I think it's true. And what that means is you should be deciding about the things you want to get feedback on. So what I recommend to people is to come up with like a working hypothesis. So for example, I want to be the CEO of a big company someday. What are the skills that I'm going to need to develop to be the best CEO I can be? Okay, one of them that I think I have the most work to do on is public speaking. So I'm going to work on getting loving critics who can give me feedback on my public speaking. And when I ask them for feedback, I'm going to confine it to that. Sometimes people ask me at that point, well, if I'm being that specific, how do I make sure I'm not missing anything? And I think that's a really good question also. Maybe at the end say, hey, is there anything else you've observed that you think might be helpful for me to know? And then you've got the best of both worlds. You're being specific, but you're allowing things that you're not focused on to bubble up if they're important. Great questions and and highly practical and and usable. So for someone who's been listening to our conversation and wants to 
take some first step to concretely implement and execute on some of the stuff that we've talked about today, what would be one piece of homework or one action item that you would give them to begin that journey? If this is answering your question, I think this is sort of the most tangible, actionable step people could take just as a starting point. It's a fair question to ask at this point, how self-aware am I? By the way, I learned that I was definitely not as self-aware as I thought I was. That's okay. We're all in this together. But I think as a first step, getting some type of baseline on your level of self-awareness can be very helpful. And when Insight launched uh, all the way back in 2017, we created this free quiz that I thought we'd leave it up for a couple months and take it down. And we've had so many hundreds of thousands of people take it and they just love it so much that we've continued to support this free tool to kind of help make the world a more self-aware place. But what it is, is a subset of 14 questions from our bigger validated self-awareness assessment. You fill it out. It takes about five minutes. You send it to someone who knows you well. They fill out the questions about you. And then you get this nice little report back on your high-level self-awareness. And then a couple of tangible, actionable steps based on your results, which again is really important. It'll tell you where you are in those four archetypes, seeker, introspector, pleaser, aware. If anybody wants to take that, you can find it at insight-quiz.com. And again, it's just a free resource we have up there that people seem to love. So I'm happy to continue to offer it. We'll make sure to include that in the show notes as well. Tasha, for people who want to find more about you, your work, everything you're doing online, what is the best place for them to do that? I always say it's much less about me. I'm more about supporting all of, you know, everybody's journey who's listening to this. So if you take the insight quiz, it's very easy to find me in general, <laughs> but I would start there. Awesome. Well, Tasha, thank you so much for coming back on the show, for sharing a tremendous amount of knowledge and insights, another great conversation about the importance of self-awareness. My pleasure. Just always a pleasure to talk to you and very grateful for the opportunity. Thank you so much for listening to The Science of Success. We created this show to help you, our listeners, master evidence-based growth. I love hearing from listeners. If you want to reach out, share your story, or just say hi, shoot me an email. My email is matt at successpodcast.com. That's M-A-T-T at successpodcast.com. I'd love to hear from you, and I read and respond to every single listener email. I'm going to give you three reasons why you should sign up for our email list today by going to successpodcast.com, signing up right on the homepage. There's some incredible stuff that's only available to those on the email list, so be sure to sign up, including an exclusive curated weekly email from us called Mindset Monday, which is short, simple, filled with articles, stories, things that we found interesting and fascinating in the world of evidence-based growth in the last week. Next, you're getting an exclusive chance to shape the show, including voting on guests, submitting your own personal questions that we'll ask guests on air, and much more. Lastly, you're going to get a free guide we created based on listener demand, our most popular guide, which is called How to Organize and Remember Everything. You can get it completely for free, along with another surprise bonus guide by signing up and joining the email list today. Again, you can do that at successpodcast.com, sign up right at the homepage, or if you're on the go, just text the word SMARTER, S-M-A-R-T-E-R, to the number 44222. Remember, the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to a friend, either live or online. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us an awesome review and subscribe on iTunes because that helps boost the algorithm that helps us move up the iTunes rankings and helps more people discover the science of success. Don't forget, if you want to get all the incredible information we talk about in the show, links, transcripts, 
everything we discuss and much more, be sure to check out our show notes. You can get those at successpodcast.com. Just hit the show notes button right at the top. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Science of Success. Mm -hmm.